Turn with me, if you would, to Philippians chapter 1. Continue our study in the book of Philippians this morning. When Tracy and I got married, we had a lot of generous friends and family members, so we got a lot of gifts, and we felt like it was appropriate to write a thank you letter for every gift that we received. Um, But some of the thank you letters were a little bit difficult to write, I thought, because I didn't really like the gift. You know, <laughs> I, mean, I was one crazy about some of the stuff. There, there was one gift in particular. Uh, if you're a little older, you'll remember these. They were water glasses and they were painted, uh, you know, these real bright colors. Okay, uh, so I'm seeing a few nods. Yeah, you folks remember these. Well, we received a set of these. Remember, we got married in 1996 and we opened up this box and it was, you know, original packaging of box. We opened it up and, and it, was, it had bugs down in all these glasses. So we realized this, you know, somebody had had this box of glasses sitting for 20 years in their garage and we open them up and I'm thinking, okay, how do you write a thank you letter for this? So I, I said, Tristy, you write this one, you know, and say something about thanks for the bug collection. I don't know, you know, it it, but I, I had a hard time writing that thank you letter. I, to be perfectly honest, I had just as difficult a time writing thank you letters for Crystal. It's a lot more valuable, but it wasn't that more valuable to me. You know, crystal and china, all this stuff came in. I'm like, uh, okay. But then my friends threw me a tool shower. That was awesome. You know, I got a gift card from Sears, and I got a circular saw, and I got a Makita cordless driver drill, and I'm like, you know, my heart is overflowing with gratefulness and joy. Let me write that note. You know, I can handle that one. That's, That's how we are as people. If we care about something... It just stirs thankfulness in us. We don't care about it. It doesn't matter how valuable it may be to the rest of the world. It just doesn't stir a sense of of gratitude in our hearts. If you recall, the book of Philippians is literally a thank you letter. Paul is writing to the Philippians and joy is just overflowing from his heart and he is saying thank you. And you learn a lot about what Paul values by seeing what he gives thanks for. I want you to read with me in chapter 1. We're going to begin again. In verse 1, it says, Paul and Timothy, slaves of Christ Jesus. I hope you scratched out bond servants again and wrote slaves, okay? Paul and Timothy, those who have surrendered all their rights. They don't have rights. All the rights have been given to Christ. They're slaves of Christ Jesus. To all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi, including the overseers and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always offering prayer with joy in my every prayer for you all in view of your participation in the gospel from the first day until now. The main verb of this entire section that we're going to look at this morning is thanksgiving. Chapter 1, verse 3, Paul says, I thank my God. And he's going to thank God for three things. First, as he looks back at his uh, past history with the Philippian believers, he's going to thank God that they have become partners in the gospel of Jesus Christ. They're partners with him in Christ. If you read in chapter 1, verse 5, it says, in view of or because of your participation in the gospel from the first day until now. That word participation, it's uh, the Greek word koinonia. We usually translate that fellowship. As Christians who've been uh, around the Bible and around Christianity for a long time, we have, we have our own concepts of fellowship. We hear the word fellowship and, and it stirs up connotations for us. For me personally, when I think of fellowship, this is what I think of. I think of, uh, I think of potluck dinners, right? Uh, and personally, I don't, I don't really ever want the word luck associated with anything I eat. 
But when I was a kid, we had potluck dinners, and this was fellowship. Down in the basement of our church, we would go down there, and it would be casseroles, which are frightening for children. Because all the food groups are all mixed together. You know, there aren't partitions in your plate and you can't separate stuff and cut out all the vegetables and, you know, and your mom is putting the food on your plate and you got to eat it and you're starving. And so I think of casseroles. If I think of anything else, I think of fellowship. I think it happens in the basement. And it doesn't taste good. So, you know, I had to kind of grow out of that. And I, I started, you know, uh, hanging out with my Christian friends and I thought to myself, that's fellowship. And then we would do Bible studies, and I realized, well, fellowship is, is what you do before the Bible study when you drink a Coke or whatever and you eat a cookie. That's fellowship. And then I realized, no, that, that's not biblical fellowship. Biblical fellowship comes from a Greek word. It means common. Okay, koinonia, it's a Greek word, koinos. It, it, it means to, to have something in common. And what we share in common is Jesus Christ. We become one in Christ. We have a shared identity. We talked about this last week. We are now citizens of heaven. We're slaves of Jesus Christ. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 9, Paul says, God is faithful through whom you were called into fellowship. There it is, koinonia. With his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. And Buck earlier read 1 John chapter 1. He says, our fellowship is with the Father and with his son, Jesus Christ. We are united together with God. And consequently, we are united together with one another. We have a shared Savior. Because we have a shared Savior and we are citizens of heaven, we have a shared purpose here on earth. I want you to look with me in chapter 1 again and verse 5. Paul says, because of your participation in the gospel from the first day until now. Paul is united with these people because they have a shared purpose, and that is participation in the gospel. And they participated, if you look in the book of Philippians and throughout the New Testament, there are at least four ways that they shared in the gospel. The first was that they were proclaimers of the gospel. They told their friends and their families and their neighbors about the grace they had discovered in Jesus Christ. So look with me in chapter 1 and verse 27. Chapter 1, verse 27. That's the verse that we all memorized this week, right? Yeah, okay. I'm very enthusiastic. I'm going to pour a little more guilt on next week. So be ready for that, all right? Chapter 1, verse 27. Only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ so that whether I come and see you or remain absent, I will hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, okay, unified, Striving together for the faith of the gospel. Literally agonizing forth for the faith of the gospel. That is, proclaiming to any and all who will listen the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So they shared in the gospel by proclaiming it. Second, they shared in the gospel by providing for Paul's needs. As he went out and he proclaimed the gospel to people they couldn't reach, they sent money to him. Apparently more than once, they sent a gift for Paul's account so that he could proclaim the gospel where they could not go. They provided for Paul's needs. They prayed for Paul as he was striving for the gospel. Look in chapter 1 and verse 19. He says, For I know that this will turn out for my deliverance through your prayers and the provision of the Spirit of Jesus Christ. Paul is in prison. His freedom has been taken away from him. And he says, There are two great powers that are going to move in my life to, to uh, release me and, and allow me to continue this work. One is the spirit of Jesus Christ, and second, the power of your prayers that are effective through his spirit. So they prayed for Paul. And then third, they provided for the needs of fellow believers who were hurting. 
who had financial and physical needs. Keep your place here in Philippians. Turn with me to the book of Romans, chapter 15. Romans 15, verse 26. Paul says, for Macedonia and Achaia, Macedonia, what church is he referring to? Church in Philippi, right? It was in Macedonia. He says, for Macedonia and Achaia have been pleased to make a contribution for the poor among the saints in Jerusalem. There were believers in Jerusalem where the gospel had started and the gospel had gone forth from Jerusalem and then to Antioch. And Antioch had been Paul's sending church and he had gone from Antioch and he brought the gospel to Philippi. So the church in Philippi had benefited spiritually from the church in Jerusalem. Now there's a famine back in Jerusalem and this church in Philippi takes from their poverty, we're told, in 2 Corinthians 8. And from their poverty, they give toward the needs of these saints back in Jerusalem. So they participated by actually sharing the gospel themselves. They participated through uh, providing for Paul's ministry, through prayer and through, through giving for those believers who had, had physical uh, and financial needs. And they, they jumped in. And we're told in, first, in Philippians chapter 1, it says, from the first day, from the moment they heard about the gospel, of God's grace. From that point in time, they immediately became participants in the gospel, not spectators. And that is the normal church. And I'm, it may not be the average church, or it may not be the average Christian experience, but normal Christian life is you understand the grace of God, that you were born dead in your transgressions and sin. Your, your destiny was an eternity separated from God. And then God stepped in and he gave us the sacrifice of Christ. And the moment we believe, we receive that as a free gift. We don't have to pay for it. We don't have to do anything but believe and we receive that free gift. All of our debt of sin is removed and we have a guaranteed eternity with God. And we have an inheritance and we have riches and we have fruitful labor Forever and ever and ever. And the moment we really begin to grasp that and understand, the spontaneous and natural response is, what can I give back? Because it, it, it totally reorients our value system. That's what Paul's trying to do with this letter. He's trying, to, he's trying to change their value system or remind them of what's truly valuable, not their citizenship in Philippi as Roman citizens, but their citizenship in heaven. And I wonder sometimes for us, do we really buy into that? Okay, do we really believe that Jesus Christ is our most precious possession? We value him above all else. I'll give you an illustration of this from the Gospels. Look in Matthew chapter 26. Matthew 26 and verse 6. Jesus is spending his last few days on earth with the, his disciples. Chapter 26, verse 6, it says, Now when Jesus was in Bethany at the home of Simon the leper, you think Simon was grateful to Jesus? <laughs> think about his history. Simon the leper, he was a leper. It means he couldn't live in his own home. He couldn't interact with his family. He had to live outside of the city. If he ever walked where uh, healthy people were, he had to call out, Unclean, unclean, don't come near me, unclean. Couldn't go into the temple and worship. And then one day Jesus passed by and he said, Jesus, will you heal me? And Jesus touches him. And he's whole again. And now here's Jesus in his home, fellowshipping with him. Yeah, Simon was grateful. Verse seven, a woman came to Jesus with an alabaster vial of very costly perfume and she poured it out on his head as he reclined at the table. Do you think that woman believed that Jesus was, 
was valuable? Did she love Jesus? Oh, absolutely. We learn in another account that this alabaster vial was probably her life savings. It was probably her life savings. It was was probably as if she went down to Fidelity and said, give me everything in my 401k because I want to give it to Jesus. I'm going to pour it onto his feet and it's going to be soaked up into the dust because she loved Jesus that much. And she understood how precious it was to be in the presence of Jesus. Now notice the disciples' response. It says the disciples were indignant when they saw this and they said, why this waste? For this perfume might have been sold for a high price and money given to the poor. Well, giving money to the poor, that's not a bad thing, is it? No. But worshiping Jesus, it was so much more important at that point in time. She had her value system correct. The disciples didn't have their value system correct at that point. So Jesus turns and he compliments her. He says to the disciples, Why do you bother the woman? For she has done a good deed to me. For you always have the poor with you, but you do not always have me. For when she poured this perfume on my body, she did it to prepare me for burial. Truly I say to you, wherever this gospel is preached in the whole world, what this woman has done will also be spoken of in memory of her. And the disciples, they take the rebuke, they step back because they believe Jesus. They're not quite sure yet. They haven't really figured out. But they're willing for Jesus to to mess with their value system. They stick with Jesus. But there's one who says, you know, enough's enough. Verse 14, it says, One of the twelve named Judas Iscariot went to the chief priests and said, What are you willing to give me to betray him to you? And they weighed out 30 pieces of silver. Simon finally says, You know, this man, this, this Messiah, he does not share my value systems. What was Simon into? Money. Remember, he was the keeper of the money box, we're told. And every once in a while, he just reached his own hand in. And here this woman has taken this alabaster vial, which is a life saving. She's broken it, poured it out. Money could have been gathered into the money box, some given to the poor and some taken by Simon. Simon finally realizes that he and I are not headed the same direction, but as long as I'm on my way out, I might as well see if I can get a little bit of money. So he goes to the chief priest and he says, how much will you give me? 30 pieces of silver. And he sells the son of God for 30 pieces of silver. Do we value Jesus that highly? We value Jesus so highly that we could even contemplate taking our life savings and pouring them out in worship, pouring them out in the advancement of the gospel. You know, it's pretty clear. How do we participate in the gospel? You know, the, the application point for this message is very easy. It's very clear. It's very straightforward. You know, we can share the gospel with our friends. We can... Um, give money to those who are spreading the gospel. We can uh, pray for those who are spreading the gospel. We can give money to fellow believers who are hurting. Um, But I think the exhortation that's more appropriate right now is that we need to learn how to just fall in love more deeply with Jesus. Because if we fall more in love with Jesus, the natural and spontaneous outflow of our heart is going to be, what can we give? If we really value something, writing that thank you note is really easy. Uh, Praying becomes easier because we're connected to Christ and we value Christ and we're connected to uh, other believers who share our value system, who are also fellow partners in the gospel of Jesus Christ.
And it's natural, it's spontaneous. You know, I was, uh, this, this last week I was thinking about this message and I realized I get, a, I get a lot of emails from all over the world, people I've never met, but they, they find our website and they send an email to me as a senior pastor and they want prayer and money for their ministry, which is fine, but I, I've never met them. I don't know them at all. And I, and I read that email and it's really, I just, I have absolutely zero emotional response. Conf- honestly, I just, I just, I just don't, I don't get stirred up. But then I got an email this week from uh, my friend John. He's an Asian miner. He's doing business and um, he's hoping to have an influence where he does business for Jesus. And um, I've known John since uh, I first moved here. I moved here in high school. And John's a couple years younger than me. But I saw John. I, I started walking with the Lord through Young Life. And then I saw John start walking with the Lord through Young Life. And I've seen. Uh, John's entire lifetime of spiritual growth. I've seen everything that's happened with him. And John, uh, John and I are partners in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I love John and I love his family. And I got a, a prayer email from John and I just, I drop what I'm doing. I'm checking my email. I stop checking emails. I stop any kind of study. I stop anything. And, and I, I pray for John and I, I love it. It's not a burden at all. Hey, Paul turns to these Philippians and he says, you are partners. We're, we are knit together. Our souls are knit together because we are one in Jesus Christ and we have the same value system. Okay, we have a shared savior. We have a shared mission and purpose in life. Third, they have a shared power that they experience. Back in Philippians chapter 1 and verse 7. Paul says, for it is only right. Literally, it's, it's only just This is the only appropriate response for me to feel this way about you all because I have you in my heart. Since both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel, you all are partakers of grace with me. And it's that same word that comes from fellowship. We have fellowship in grace. Grace is God's unmerited favor, his blessing toward us that gives us eternal life, but then also gives us power to bear witness for the gospel, power to be transformed into the image of Christ. And Paul says, this is a, it's a shared power. And so often we don't experience God's powerful grace in our lives because we're not partnering in the gospel. Right? We, we want God's power in our lives to spend it upon ourselves. But God has given us his grace in our lives so that we could participate in exalting the name of Jesus Christ. And so Paul has this incredibly rich and deep bond with these people because they have the same purpose in life. Now, second, they are partners in hope. So as Paul looks back at his past relationship with them, he has these partners in the gospel of Jesus Christ. As he looks forward to the future, they're partners with him in hope. Would you look with me in chapter 1 and verse 6? So let's take a running start out again. Let's read in verse 3. I thank my God. In all my remembrance of you, always offering prayer with joy in my every prayer for you all, because of your participation, your partnership, your fellowship in the gospel from the first day until now. For I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. Now, I have a question for you. What is the good work? What is the good work? I suspect, if I asked last week, has anybody ever memorized uh, any verses in Philippians? A lot of folks would say, I've memorized one. It's Philippians 1, verse 6. And I memorized Philippians 1, 6 years and years ago. It's probably the first verse I memorized in Philippians. 
I'm confident in this very thing that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. And I claim that verse as my verse of a guarantee of personal sanctification. All right? I've heard that verse preached on as a guarantee of personal sanctification. Now, let me make the point. God does promise that he's going to work in your life and he will not give up on you if you are a believer in Jesus Christ. He's going to work and work and work to conform you to the image of Christ until the day that you die and you go to be with Christ. He's going to work on that. But that's not what Paul's talking about here. What he's talking about here is the advancement of the gospel. Confident in this very thing, that he who began a good work in in you, well, it's probably better translated among you. And it's plural. Among you. He who began a good work among you will perfect that work until the day of Christ. What he's saying is, you are the first church that I planted that chose to participate in the gospel. And then from you, you became an example to all the churches around that this is what a normal church does, that they jump in, that their value systems are changed, they participate in the gospel. God is going to continue this work of advancing the gospel through his people, through the church, and he's going to do it right up until the day of Christ. What happens on the day of Christ? Advancement of the gospel is complete because Jesus Christ returns All nations see him, every knee bows, every tongue confesses that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father, and we don't do evangelism anymore. The gospel doesn't advance through the church anymore. And Paul says, I am confident. I'm not confident in in you necessarily. I'm not confident in my flesh. I'm not confident in us. But what I'm confident in is that we are on the right side of this. We have a common enemy who is causing suffering in our lives right now. We have a common enemy who is Satan, and we have a common enemy internally, which is sin. But Jesus Christ is going to come back, and he's going to conquer that enemy, and I know that the gospel will advance up until that point in time. And so Paul shares hope with them. It's a common hope. I I hope uh, that you all listened to the inauguration speech this week. No matter who you voted for, this was a historic occasion for our nation. The first African-American to be elected president of the United States. Very historic. I, you know, as a public speaker, I was really pleased. Apparently, he wrote his own speech. Now, which that really impresses me because most of these folks, they don't write their own speeches. And he delivered it very powerfully. And one of the things he was trying to do is he was trying to rouse us to citizenship He had a good citizenship, but he made a comment in the midst of his speech that kind of stuck out in my mind. He said this, he said, we work towards an uncertain future. I was studying Philippians, I was reading Philippians, and he made that comment, I thought, huh. You know, from his perspective, I guess that's true, right? Because our economic future is uncertain. Will it turn around in the next four years, and will he get credit for that? I don't know. It's uncertain. Uh, Will war and rumors of war stop in the Middle East in the next four years? Mm, We don't know. Will the Republicans cooperate with him at all? Mm, Probably not, right? A lot of uncertainty. There are all these things in his world right now that he has absolutely no control over. And so he speaks to the American people and he says, work with me. And we're working toward an uncertain future. I heard that and I thought, you know, As believers in Jesus Christ, we are not working toward an uncertain future. We are working toward an absolutely guaranteed future, which is the return of Jesus Christ and the advancement of the gospel cannot be stopped. Man, amen? Okay, if you are working toward anything in your life, 
that is other than the advancement of the gospel of Jesus Christ, you are working toward an uncertain future and you're going to live your entire life with uncertainty and fear. You're working toward your own personal financial freedom. Good luck. Are you working toward your own personal health, strength? Good luck. It's uncertain. What's certain is that Jesus Christ is going to return. And if you give your life to the advancement of the gospel of Jesus Christ, you will have confidence. See, biblically, uh, the idea of hope is it's not wishful thinking. It's confidence. We know what's going to happen next. And Paul has this rich, rich bond with these believers because they share hope. They know what's coming next. Third, they are partners with him in joy. So look with me again back in chapter 1, verse 3. He says, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always offering prayer with joy in my every prayer for you all. Uh, 16 times in the book of Philippians, Paul uses the word joy or rejoice. 16 times. That's why a lot of people think that joy is the theme of Philippians. Remember Paul's circumstances. He's in prison. How can he be filled with joy when he's suffering? He has been beaten. He has been shipwrecked. He has been sleepless. He has been hungry. He is now, uh, has all of his freedoms taken away. And yet he said he is, he, he says he is filled with joy. Would you look at me chapter 2, verse 17? Four times in these two verses, Paul talks about joy. Paul says, but even if I'm being poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrifice and service of your faith, what's he talking about? He's saying, uh, even if I am in prison right now, and even though I am suffering for the gospel, I rejoice and I share, okay, koinonia, again, I, I share my joy with you all. You too, I urge you, rejoice in the same way and share your joy with me. How can Paul be in prison his freedom's all denied, and still he says, I'm, I'm overflowing with joy. It's because he has partners in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Yeah, he, has, he has people around him that share his value system, people that when he's suffering, they are there for him, people when he's in financial need, they are there for him, people who, uh, who share the same a vision of hope for the future. And so he's never alone. Even though he's in prison and he's suffering, he's never alone. It's interesting, uh, a man named John Ortberg wrote a book a few years ago called The Life You've Always Wanted. So that was a really great title, The Life You've Always Wanted. When you think about the life you've always wanted, what do you think about? Well, I think you think about, um, you think about having friends around you who walk through life with you. Right? Friends, no matter what the circumstances that you they're going to be faithful to you and you're going to be faithful to them. When they're hurting, you're there with them and when you're hurting, they're there for you. I was actually just uh, talking to some friends about this in the foyer right before the service. And we long for that, that kind of community. We want a life of, of joy. Okay, a life where we can, we, we can rise above the circumstances. We transcend them. In the midst of suffering, we have confidence. We're not fearing the future. We have lives of power, of grace. We see God working in our lives and the lives of those around us. This is the life we've always wanted. But when we, in a sense, pursue joy as an end, we we don't find it. Pursue happiness as an end in and of itself, we don't find it. Joy, happiness, contentment, these things are results. They're consequences. They're they're a byproduct. I can't tell you how many parents I've talked to 
uh, with their kids are making poor decisions and uh, they say to me, you know, but it's a bad decision. I don't agree with it, but as long as they're happy. Oh, and I just die inside. I say, no, because if they pursue that for the sake of happiness, they're going to reach out. They're, they're going to think they've grabbed what life is all about, the life they've always wanted, and they'll realize it's gone. It's nothing. The life you've always wanted is find, found in pursuing Jesus Christ along with the people of God. Okay, pursuing Jesus Christ, proclaiming Jesus Christ, making him known, and doing it in the community of believers, that is the only life that will satisfy you. And this book of Philippians is all about focusing us on that. The life you've always wanted. Pursuing Christ, proclaiming Christ. Uh, traditionally, the way the church has uh, celebrated that, every week they would get together and they would share a meal. They would have koinonia, they would have fellowship. Uh, and they would celebrate what they often called uh, the Eucharist, which means Thanksgiving. They also called it traditionally communion, which means union together with. Now, you don't celebrate communion or the Eucharist or the Lord's Supper sitting in your house by yourself picking up a little bit of juice and some bread. Okay? You need to celebrate it with other believers. So as we uh, conclude our service today, we're going to celebrate communion together. Uh, would the men come forward? Uh, as they're coming forward, I want to uh, read you a, book, a verse. I, I've actually read this verse many, many times, but it just uh, kind of jumped out at me this week. It's from 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 15. Paul says, I speak as to wise men, you judge what I say. Is not the cup of blessing which we bless a sharing? Same word, koinonia. Isn't it a coming together in the blood of Christ? Is not the bread which we break a sharing in the body of Christ? Since there's one body, we who are many are one body. Since there's one bread, we who are many are one body. We all partake of the one bread. As we um, take communion together, we're going to wait until everyone's served. We don't take it individually, we wait And I want you just to take a few moments and go before the Lord and give him thanks for the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Let's just take a few moments to meditate and then we'll take the bread and we'll take the cup together. John chapter 6 says, The Jews began to argue with one another, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in yourselves. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will, will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so he who eats of me, he also will live because of me. This is the bread which came down out of heaven, not as the fathers ate and died. He who eats this bread will live forever. Bread represents the body of Jesus Christ, his suffering because of our sins. Let's take it together. Cup represents the blood of Jesus Christ which was sacrificed to remove the debt and the penalty for our sins. Let's take the cup together. Father, we thank you for Jesus. I pray, Lord, that we would learn to value him above all of the foolish pleasures of this life and the pursuits that cannot bring joy, cannot bring hope, fulfillment. 
I pray, Father, that our love for Jesus would grow and grow. We would uh, have hearts that are just filled with gratitude. We joyfully uh, participate in the gospel every way that we possibly can. Uh, not so much out of a sense of uh, a burden of duty, but uh, out of just grateful, grateful hearts for the wonderful gift that we've been given, which is Jesus, Jesus himself. Father, we acknowledge nothing makes us white as snow but the blood of Jesus. It's his righteousness, not our own righteousness. Father, because of his sacrifice, you have given us fellowship. You have united us with yourself through him. You've united us with one another. I pray, Father, that as we study this book and as it sinks deeply into our hearts, that you would you'd move all the way down to the, to the system of values that we have, the, the things that we hold dear, and you would put Christ preeminent above all. Father, I pray that you would pour out your richest blessings upon this body of believers this week, and that as they experience your blessing, their hearts would be filled with gratitude to Jesus. It's in his name we pray. Amen. God bless you. We'll see you next week.